In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and here in Dublin. Close but no cigar. The European Commission says 95% of the future relationship treaty is complete, but it's that 5% gap which remains unbridgeable. We'll look at exactly what is holding things up and what happens if both sides run out of time. Spoiler alert, the lawyers are going to get very busy in the next few weeks. We'll explore one option which appears to be gaining ground, the idea of applying the treaty provisionally from January 1st and then formally ratifying it later. But that opens up the Pandora's box of what kind of treaty it is and whether or not national parliaments might or should end up having a say on the Brexit treaty. And it's been a busy week for the Northern Ireland Protocol in the Houses of Parliament with supermarkets and cross-border crime dominating two vivid hearings before the Lords and the Commons. Well, first, Tony, bring us right up to speed. The co-repair meeting, the meeting, the briefing to European Union member state ambassadors happened this morning. What did we learn? We learned quite a lot. Uh, Colm, actually, uh, it was it was a fairly detailed briefing by Ilsa Johansson, who is the Secretary General of the Commission, and she was standing in for Michel Barnier, who, of course, had to self-isolate after that news yesterday on Thursday that one of his senior team members members was diagnosed with COVID-19 and the talks had to be suspended on Thursday afternoon. This was agreed with David Frost, his opposite number, and essentially those who can keep talking by video conference will do so. Those who are able to meet in person will will do so. They've arranged that everybody in the two teams who needs a test will get it and, and get quick results so that the talks can resume as quickly as possible. So Ilse Johansson, who's a Secretary General of the Commission, went in and basically told EU ambassadors that 95% of the treaty is now complete. The 5%, again, is the the three big issues, the level playing field, fisheries and governance. But even on the 95% complete side of the ledger, within those texts, there are things like aviation and energy and road haulage and uh, rules of origin where, okay, it's complete, but it's kind of open at the same time. In other words, they don't get closed off until the whole thing gets done because clearly the EU thinks there's a bit of linkage and leverage there. But the feeling is that if the three big issues can get solved, then everything else will more or less fall into line. But again, the three big issues are fairly intractable. Not so much on state aid. I'm I'm told that they are getting closer on a series of high-level principles on how state aid should be applied on both sides of the channel and on, on what kind of rules would apply. The problem is wider level playing field issues. So in other words, that both sides adhere to standards on how you produce goods when it comes to environmental protection, when it comes to labour laws, social welfare, 
benefits and so on, climate change, taxation. The EU basically wants to make sure that the UK can't get an advantage over the other side by lowering its standards, but they also want to make sure that you know both sides can evolve their standards together over time and that the level playing field has to be sort of minded over the years. And if there's any divergence by the UK from these standards, then the EU can take swift retaliatory action in some other sphere of interaction. And this is something that the UK is is resisting. On fisheries, they haven't really got into a full-blooded negotiation on numbers, on, on quotas and on access. The UK is still resisting any big strides in, in that front. There's a very interesting development, an extremely interesting development, I think, on the fisheries front, which is that the EU would say, okay, let's have an agreement now on fisheries. The UK will get X amount of quota and limit X amount of access by European fleets as a kind of a down payment. And then in five or 10 years time, we'll have a review and we'll see how it's all going. But the thing is, because fisheries and the free trade agreement have been so intimately linked, what the EU is thinking now is that if we have a review on fisheries in five years or 10 years time, we'll have a review on everything, the entire treaty, so that again, fisheries isn't left as an isolated issue, that you still have that leverage for the EU side. As far as I know, they haven't tabled this formally in the negotiations, but this is what they're talking about. This came up in the briefing this morning. Clearly, the UK would not be happy with that at all because they would they would obviously want fisheries to be done and dusted and that they can get on with taking back control of their waters. Sean, has there been any reaction to Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, talking about things being just metres from the line? I mean, is there any sense that something is coming from London to give her to understand that? Or is it striking an optimistic tone in order to try and inject some momentum into things as the clock runs down? All the noise that is happening around London is to do with Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, who's been accused of uh, breaching the ministerial code in relation to uh, alleged bullying against her staff. But Boris Johnson decided to keep her on in the job because he said it was unintentional bullying. And so the chap who wrote the report is in charge of the ministerial code. Civil servant has resigned in protest. So that's today's unintentional uh, scandal bullying. and uproar. Yeah, apparently that's the new thing now. I didn't um, know I was taking your lunch money. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we're going to be seeing for the rest of Is the week. Your, your lunch money was only resting in my account, right? Okay, and <laughs> continues to rest in my account. Uh, and uh, let it not be said otherwise. Brexit again. It's, it's just not high up on the agenda here. There's too much other stuff going on that people are concerned about. Which is not a bad thing. Well, it's not a bad thing in the sense of we've got a pandemic killing tens of thousands of people and that kind of knocks lots of other stories off the agenda. And then there's nothing like a good old Barney in the government, particularly involving a popular character like Priti Patel, again, to distract from the awful business of AORA numbers and fish quotas that's going on in, in Brussels. And again, you know, we keep hearing for week after week, month after month, We've got these three issues. We're almost there. There's some progress being made, but not enough. See you next week, folks. Without anything hard and fast to to jump on, well, you know, there ain't much to jump on. We had a slight whiff of, of some kind of optimism coming from David Frost earlier in the week saying, look, we've been making decent progress on certain issues. So it's not like we're hitting a brick wall on everything. But if we don't get a good deal, there isn't going to be a deal. So we're at loggerheads there. And in that situation, not too many people are focusing on it. And uh, there's just a bit of watching and waiting. And then 
seeing what the other consequences are going to be. And again, I think we'll be talking about this later, seeing in the committee work over the last couple of weeks, the unfolding of the lack of preparation on the British side for 1st of January kickoff, either the shutters coming down with no trade deal or even in the context of a free trade agreement, still a lot of things remaining to be done. And that's where the political and intellectual focus of Brexit is. That's the bits that are being spoken about, the rest of it not really being spoken about. Right. And does the departure of Dominic Cummings last week in some ways actually complicate things because it can't be seen that the person who was providing the vote leave spine in number 10 Downing Street, his departure then triggers some form of compromise. Yeah, well, this week it probably means that it will be is too soon to be seen to uh, be having a collapse. Uh, and you're right, there is this view around that if you took out the solid core, then Downing Street would be like a blob of jelly at the feet of Brussels and would sign up to anything. So it's better to tough it out for a bit. And then, of course, we have the complicating factor of the Prime Minister's own self-isolation because of being in, in a close contact with uh, some Tory MPs, one of whom tested positive for COVID-19. That's the kind of random stuff that happens. Again, as Tony was saying, we've seen it in the uh, EU's negotiating team this week. President von der Leyen has had to, to isolate, I think, twice at least over the past couple of months. Again, because of things that politicians do. They meet people. They come into contact with people. It's the nature of the trade. And, and unfortunately, given what's happening at the moment, things like this do happen. But again, Boris Johnson's period in self-isolation is going to end next Thursday. Some people are thinking, well, maybe that's a propitious date as well, in which case this chap who professes himself to be as fit as a butcher's dog might make a bound towards Brussels to try and tie up some kind of a deal or at least be able to bound out and meet people again, the politicians he needs to meet to convince them to, to rally behind any possible deal that he wants to sell to them. But in terms of the timing of Dominic Cummings' departure, the timing of Boris Johnson's being tied up with the COVID, yeah, it doesn't look great. And the idea that it was all going to neatly fall into place that uh, Frost would go to Brussels last weekend, do the deal during the middle of the week, have something that could be sent up the line to the European Council's virtual meeting on Thursday night for some kind of a sign-off there, and the ball would start rolling... Yeah, it probably was over-optimistic to expect that to happen, and particularly in the context of the ructions in Downing Street last week. Tony, in this particular peace process, the provisional FTA is a key player. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the, the issue now, of course, because weeks go by and we still don't get an agreement, and obviously the, the COVID issue this week has, has certainly not helped things. I think... The feeling in Brussels is that there is a deal there to be done, but a, a big political decision has to be made in Downing Street, and that simply hasn't been made yet. But th- because time is running out, they're starting to look at what happens if time runs out. The stuff that the EU has to get through between now and the end of the year, the European Parliament has to ratify the treaty. The notional date for that is around the 16th of December. Ahead of that, the treaty has to be legally translated, translated into 23 official languages. It has to be legally scrubbed to make sure there's nothing in there that that is irregular or could give rise to a legal action down the line. Lawyer linguists have to do the translation because it has to have the same legal meaning in each language. And all of that takes a lot of time because 
national capitals have to go through this treaty line by line and they're not going to do it with a big dictionary beside them. They want to do it in their own language and again that takes time. The Council of Ministers have to produce a decision on signature and a decision on conclusion. Now those are two mechanisms which basically give legal effect to the treaty and reconcile it with EU law and there might be declarations or guidelines or observations in there which say you know because of X, Y and Z this part of the treaty is is not going to be a precedent for other parts. For example with the withdrawal agreement there were something like eight articles that member states had to, had to draw up to say this is how the joint committee is going to work so all of that is work that has to be done it can't be just rushed overnight so they're starting to think you know what we're not going to get this done on time uh, so what you just outlined there would be a mainstream free trade agreement let's call that the official FTA so how does the provisional FTA differ from the official FTA? It's not that the trade deal itself is provisional it's just that it, it's applied provisionally so it, it's not it's not fully concluded but both sides could say okay we agree that this treaty provisionally takes effect on the 1st of January but because of the extreme shortage of time and unique circumstances you can probably mention the Covid pandemic in there somewhere as well we have had to hold off on all of that legal procedural work including ratification by the European Parliament and just make sure this treaty comes into effect on the 1st of January in a provisional sense. Now that happens with free trade agreements it's it's not an unusual thing but obviously in this occasion you know you it would be a bit of a bloody nose for the European Parliament who have been kind of kept at arm's length in a sense throughout the Brexit process and that their big moment is to ratify this treaty in December if they're being told well actually you, you, you'll get some date in January to ratify it. it doesn't go down very well but you know they could probably be won over it would give both sides an extra few weeks to negotiate and there's talk that Michel Barnier has been told by the Parliament that they could have a meeting at the end of December which would you know give give them a chance to maybe consent on stuff and then you could have other procedural stuff done after the 1st of January. But the problem with this idea is that if you're going to provisionally apply the treaty, questions will be asked then, well, what kind of treaty is this going to be? Is it going to be an EU-only treaty? In other words, it only touches on EU competences and in that situation, the European Parliament can ratify it and that's it. Or is it going to be a mixed treaty so it has both EU-only competences and national competences? And that, in that situation, national parliaments and sometimes regional parliaments have to ratify the treaty as well. So then you get right. into this two-year process. Let's go back to the, the EU-Canada deal and TTIP. Do you remember the big marches against those? Big groundswell of opposition to global free trade. We haven't seen that, <laughs> you know, regarding Brexit. But who knows, you know... Well, like we have, what we have say, seen during the week is um, Hungary and Poland playing hardball with signing off on the multi-annual financial framework, the EU budget. So if it went down to national parliaments ratifying, could we see countries, say Hungary and Poland, playing similar hardball in order to leverage something entirely differently uh, in another area of EU life? If you start running it through national parliaments, I mean, all kinds of accidents can happen. Democracy is like that. I mean, can you imagine it going through the doll? The fishing organisations are extremely unhappy with the, the, the fishing agreement as part of the treaty. Like, who knows what where this would lead? Aviation is not an EU-only competence. It's, an, it's mostly a national competence. And some member states have big interests in aviation. So the question is, well, you know, would, would these member states say, well, hang on a minute, maybe we do need to run this through our own parliaments. Maybe we can't just run this through as an EU only treaty even though 
ultimately it's up to member states themselves what way the treaty uh, comes out you know it's as long as as long as you've got the agreement of the UK in provisionally applying the treaty you know the EU can call it whatever kind of treaty it wants whether it's EU or mixed or whatever Sean, I suppose it does have the advantage of the harder the thing is to understand, potentially the easier it is to sell it in the UK as a victory. Of course, that's uh, always the case. And we saw that last year with the withdrawal agreement that also was left to the very last minute and was then rammed through the Parliament. It was promoted as the oven-ready deal the great solution, the great pivot that was done by Boris Johnson meeting Leo Varadkar on the Wirral led to a breakthrough, hurrah, hurrah, let's win an election on the basis of this, and then you ram it through quickly, don't give people time to really think about it. But when they did have time to think about it over the Christmas break and into early January, some of them started to think, well, we don't really like this, and that's where you'd start to see people who literally weeks before had been saying, we don't need any extra time to discuss or debate this, we've had enough debate for the last three years, this is perfect, thanks very much, turning around and saying, no, this is, this is a bad deal for Britain, and the rot starting to set in then. And the problem I see facing governments, particularly Boris Johnson, if the uh, future relationship is introduced on a provisional basis, provisional free trade agreement, then it does give the gremlins time to get to work in the undergrowth and start gnawing away at the wires and uh, solder and unpicking the agreement that has been uh, carefully put in place and allowing a groundswell of opinion to perhaps start building up. That mightn't be the case if you had a full and final deal ready to barrel through the parliament. I mean, there is a a kind of a growing um, conspiracy theory around this town that the closer this thing gets to the December 2nd, the better for Boris, December 2nd being the target date they have for unlocking the current lockdown, getting shops open, trying to get some kind of a, a Christmas normality, that is stampede of frenzied shopping and partying going for the next few weeks. That would certainly distract an awful lot of people away from Brexit. You would then have a fairly short amount of parliamentary time to get the deal across the line. Again, most of the public aren't going to be watching it. All they want to know is, is the trade going to keep flowing? Yes or no? Yes, thanks very much. And on it goes. There wouldn't be the focus and the time to build up a huge head of uh, steam against the measures in that short, fairly frenetic period. But if it's provisionally applied, they can come back at it later on. And of course, it's one thing to be provisionally applying free trade agreements, but provisionally applying data agreements, data adequacy agreements, I don't know whether that's been done before. How do you provisionally apply access to the Schengen information system, for example, or the judicial and police cooperation issues, other security cooperation issues? There's a lot of other stuff out there. Remember, it's not just a free trade deal that's under discussion here. There's a lot of other issues that have to be packed away, squared away in this relationship between the UK and the EU. And I'm not sure whether all of them lend themselves to provisional applications. Can I just add to it? it, If the free trade agreement is provisionally implemented, Tony, sorry, as you were outlining earlier, this internal markets bill and the problematic clauses that caused so much difficulty in the House of Lords, there was a school of thought that said, look, if there is a free trade agreement, the British government will be happy enough to pull them out. Job done, it can be coordinated and everybody's happy. If the free trade agreement is only implemented provisionally, do they not remain as a more glaring sticking point? Because if they are an insurance policy from the UK government's point of view, they may not want to remove them while the FTA is only in provisionally. Well, I mean, I suppose in one way, you know, provisional application of a treaty is, is still a fairly big a big deal. I mean, you've crossed the Rubicon at that point. Um, 
I mean, and the same. So, it, sorry, sorry, just to, just to clarify that, it's if it is provi- if it is applied provisionally, is the free trade agreement signed off and agreed in principle by both sides, or is it some yeah. form of a, a kind of an informal transition arrangement where they say, look, we can sign up to this later, but let's just put these arrangements in place for now? Which way? Which way is well, it kind of rolled I mean, out? But, but it's signed off by both sides, and then the the procedures, the formalities of ratifying it just take longer. So what so both okay, sides. Okay, so it say, doesn't preempt we, ratification. Oh sorry, it it, no, it, 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 it presumes ratification. Exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and you know both if obviously if both sides agree to it then you know it, it's given legal weight and it's it's article 218 of the of the Lisbon Treaty which gives power to Michel Barnier in fact to say I recommend to the European Council that they can provisionally enter this into force or agree it or or whatever conclude it and then the ratification and the other formalities can can take place later so the the same condition i think would apply when it comes to the internal market bill the eu would say look we're not going to do this either formally th- all the way through to the european parliament ratifying it or in the sort of bridge effect of this uh, if you don't take those clauses out i mean that that sort of issue is still there and again that was raised at the european union ambassadors meeting this morning so you know that prerequisite for the uk to remove those clauses is still very much there john i agree with tony that the eu is not going to sign anything if those clauses are still there what's the update on that and indeed the northern ireland protocol well the internal market bill is still obviously a source of contention it got thumped in the house of lords last week it's still being picked away at Uh, in the Lords. They haven't finished with that process yet and they're going to send it down to the Commons. Now it's been pushed back into early December. Again, I think that date is flexible, but that puts off a row that I don't think they're keen to have in the Parliament between the upper and lower houses because the wiser heads in the House of Lords think this is a bad idea, this lawbreaker clauses. It's a bad idea on many, many levels, but the government seem to be fairly intent on having it there as some kind of a a weapon or a provocation against the European Union. It hasn't worked out very well for them, not in Brussels, not in Washington, not in the upper house in their own parliament, but they're still hanging into it. So it is a dangerous bone of contention and it's been massively destructive of trust on the European Union side. And trust is something that you really do need if you're trying to close off agreements like that. In terms of last year's deal in the withdrawal agreement, and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, you're right, they've been back at that one, looking at a couple of the issues there. And one of them was uh, security issues. We had the House of Lords Security Committee examining this issues on Tuesday, and they had in the Assistant Chief Constable of the PSNI, Mark McEwen. They'd also hoped to have a Garda representative attend, but uh, as they said, the Garda were unable to attend the meeting. Of course, the meetings are all virtual anyway. People died in on Zoom conferences. This one chaired by Peter Ricketts, former National Security Advisor. He was taking the evidence from the Assistant Chief Constable of the PSNI. Obviously, they were interested in things like cross-border crime. According to the PSNI's 83 organised crime groups in the North, and 16 of them have well-established cross-border links. But it's not just the big ticket items that you'd expect, like cross-border criminal, fuel, cigarettes, smuggling, diesel laundering, paramilitarism. It's also issues that they're very concerned about. Uh, One of the biggest uh, uses that they have been making of the uh, 
Schengen information system is for missing persons cases. There were about 1,300 items that they used through the Schengen system in the first six months of this year. That's the PSNI. And then he was pointing to the fact that there's a number of communities that the border flows through. So just for ordinary commoner garden, Bobby on the beat type policing, they need to work with the Garda, whom they say they have you know, fantastic cooperation with. They've got uh, cross-border taskings on a more or less daily basis where joint teams from PSNI and the Garda would coordinate their actions. They think that kind of stuff will continue. The Assistant Chief Constable was fairly confident that bilateral agreements could be put in place that would cover most of the type of information that they will be losing and arrangements that they will be losing access to after the 1st of January, but conceded that some things like passenger name database you just can't replace on a bilateral basis or falling back on the I-24-7 system from Interpol would be all right, but certainly doesn't have the same kind of depth and accuracy as the uh, SIS-2 system would have. So issues certainly there for security. But again, the emphasis seemed to be on bilateral deals and local arrangements trying to replace as much as possible of what they stand to lose from the end of uh, British membership right. of the there, EU. A, but just, if just I can just, uh, there, there's, there's a, a, an issue as well, Sean, I don't know if you saw it, but a few weeks ago there was a similar hearing before the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee and it was Steve Rodhouse, who's the, from the National Crime Agency, also saying that, you know, once Brexit takes effect, the security at English ports will be much tighter because they've taken back control, uh, supposedly, of their their ports and their borders. And for that reason, there was a fear that international criminals would use Ireland as a soft kind of underbelly over the Northern Ireland border and into the UK when it comes to trafficking people, drugs and, and weapons as well. And that, you know, criminals would make a fundamental choice about which port they try and get into the UK through. And if the UK ports are now stuffed with border force and customs, it's going to be a lot more difficult to smuggle stuff in. So, you know, the fear is you, you would, they would use Irish ports to smuggle stuff in and then get that over the invisible land border and then into the UK across from, from Northern Ireland. So, well, it depends on, the, on how tough the Northern Ireland or the border on the Irish Sea becomes at that point. I mean, you know yourself, there's few enough places mm. to get across from Northern Ireland to GB. In that uh, hearing on Tuesday, immigration did rise up as an issue and the PSNI raised it as a concern point. They said they're already on that case. They, they do know that there's already trafficking routes where trafficking gangs bring people into Dublin and uh, exploit the people there and then move them up to Northern Ireland and then move them across into the UK. That's happening right now. Mm, that's uh, right. So they think there probably will be another attempt at that as the, the Dover-Calais short straits uh, area becomes tougher to get people across through they may well try and move them up through the north. But again, it's three ports you're dealing with. There's supposed to be all these additional customs facilities going into those places anyway, although, as we know, they haven't really started building them yet. So it is going to present a bit of a security challenge for them. But I don't know, I'm not sure about this idea that getting into the Republic of Ireland is a soft touch. I know I have to show my passports and COVID forms and everything else anytime I go through Dublin airport, but when I come back to London airports, you just walk off the plane. Nobody checks you except for the ticket guys at the railway station.
Right, the Irish are more suspicious of you, Sean, than the English, which... Probably with good reason, exactly. let's be fair. Finally then, going back to the comments of Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, saying that, you know, we, we are only metres from the line. I don't know whether the analogy was used when you guys were in school, but infinity used to be explained by the flea jumping towards the line, that they could jump half the distance to the line and then half the distance they just jumped thereafter and never reached the line. So progress could be made. We might be only metres from the line, but with the sticking points that are there, could we still be looking at a no deal? I, I think, uh, personally, I don't know what Sean thinks about this, but you know, my, my gut feeling is that a no deal is still very much possible because what has been agreed so far is stuff that they probably were always going to agree. I mean, there was going to be give and take e- either way, but what is holding this up is really the level playing field, and that is such a fundamental issue. I mean, the, the, the European Union is saying, if you want access to our single market then these are our conditions for entering it we must be able to to be sure that you're not going to undercut us in how you make goods and if you start to depart from the standards that we have to comply with as european member states and as european companies then you're simply not going to get away with having you know high level single market access that in turn for the uk is tantamount to just brexit in name only that if, if the uk still has to comply with eu standards then what's the point so that is a really tough fundamental issue that is keeping both sides apart if they can do if they can get some way around that then i think fisheries will fall into place there will be a last minute scrap and that's where you'll get Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen in a room with calls to Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron saying okay this is a straightforward numbers trade-off we want to limit your access to our waters and limit how much quota you get and they'll club it out with each other and find some kind of middle ground that can be done but not until the level playing field bit is done first and I think it's still possible that they simply won't get a deal on that and the UK will say well look you know, let's look at what we're going to get. It's a thin free trade agreement. It's not that much different from no deal. So why don't we just play the nationalist card and turn our backs on the Europeans and, you know, we'll prosper mightily in the words of Boris Johnson. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I mean, no deal is, is still a very, very live uh, prospect here. And the groundwork is being laid to blame the European Union. I mean, it's, let's be honest, it's been blamed. they've been laying that groundwork for about 40 years, but it's, it's come in handy uh, in the next few weeks. If the talks collapse, they will absolutely blame the European Union. And of course, we have the massive public relations newspaper nexus here here in the UK who will no doubt amplify those government messages. One of the tactics that has been explored on the British side for many years now has been don't bother with an overarching deal that ties you up in things like level playing fields and agreements here, there and everywhere. Finish the talks, wrap them up by Christmas, leave, take the shock in terms of the, the customs. They think it's going to be you know, masked by the economic shock that's already there caused by COVID. It won't. It'll amplify it for various reasons. But come back then after Christmas, sometime in the new year, and start looking for mini deals, looking for some kind of a, a bare bones free trade agreement to keep trade flowing in the first instance. Then do an aviation agreement, an energy agreement, a fisheries agreement as and when. And that's been completely rejected by the EU side all the way through this. But if the actual talks process, future relationship process is smashed to pieces, then picking up the pieces one by one may be the only approach that's left. And in that case, you just have to do mini deals one after another, if for no other reason than you will have the uh, screams 
of various industrial sectors ringing in your ears all of the time. It won't be that easy for the British either, though, because there is this Northern Ireland Protocol and the withdrawal agreement. And if the Internal Market Bill is kept as part of this collapse process, then it does hugely complicate the issues surrounding Northern Ireland, particularly with the uh, incoming administration in the United States, but also, I think, with the outgoing administration as well. Even if they were to park that issue and try and implement the Northern Ireland Protocol as a goodwill measure, we also heard in a committee on Wednesday of the enormous complexity and problems being faced by industry on the ground with the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium, with Aon Connolly, Stephen Kelly of, of of manufacturing Northern Ireland and Victor Chestnut of the Farmers Union. Yeah, the, far, the the supermarkets, that's been pretty well ventilated, all these massive mixed loads, 90% of the loads going across. But even for things like some of the farmers, again, at this very late stage, Victor Chestnut of the Ulster Farmers Union saying it was only two weeks ago that he realised that every farmer in Northern Ireland, all 24,000 of them, are supposed to sign up for an AORI number, a customs number. And the reason for that is that they could be importing machinery second-hand machinery from somebody in Scotland or England, which they frequently do. It's one of the normal parts of farming. Yeah. And now suddenly they have to get caught up in a big customs procedure. And they're only discovering this now. Uh, And they're only discovering that they need to sign up for the trader support scheme. There's supposed to be a special element of that for agriculture, imports and exports, particularly around live animals. But they've no idea what it is because it hasn't been set down yet. The, The government side have not formulated what needs to be done. And so this is building step by step every day almost. We're getting new revelations about simply how utterly unprepared people are in general, whether that's the industrial side or the government side, to implement the things that are being asked of them under the existing agreement. Never mind what they're trying to sort out this week and next week in Brussels. What's there now is not enforceable, not implementable. The computer thing we've, we've already talked about last week, about how it'll be more than a year before computers are ready for this go date. So there's an enormous amount of things to be done. The other interesting and and rather depressing stat from Stephen Kelly of manufacturers was uh, that only 9% of Northern Ireland businesses feel that they are prepared at this point. It's up a little bit from 7% in the quarter two survey. But the the really tricky one was earlier in the year, 60% of Northern Ireland businesses said they were actively preparing for these Brexit changes on the 1st of January. That's now fallen to 39%. And the reason is that most businesses are simply consumed with the business of trying to stay alive during the COVID crisis. They're worried about conserving their capital and their capabilities and focusing on just being in business, not of doing all these enormous changes that are being required of them because of Brexit. Tony, just finally then, and briefly before we look ahead to the the coming week, the European Commission not publishing any no-deal plans despite calls from, is it the French, the Dutch and the Belgians seeking a publication of no-deal planning? Yeah, that's right, and this this came up last night, uh, that being Thursday night, at the EU leaders' video conference, a number of countries there, you mentioned France and the Netherlands, and Belgium, I think in Spain as well, urging the European Commission to start publishing no-deal contingency plans. And again, that came up at the uh, Europe EU ambassadors meeting this morning and that briefing from the Secretary General of the Commission. And they want these plans to be published next week. The Commission has been resisting publishing these plans because these would be basic plans to keep essentials going so that flights don't suddenly stop on the 1st of January. Road haulage trucks can keep delivering stuff either side of the channel. The Commission's worry is that if they publish detailed contingency plans there for a no-deal situation, the UK might look at them and think, hmm, 
that's not too bad, actually. We could live with those. So again, that might diminish their appetite to actually get an agreement. So again, these things are all on a hair trigger and member states are at the same time saying, look, we have companies who want to invest and they don't know what the status is going to be vis-a-vis the UK market, the European Union, and you know, we, need, we, st- we need clarity. So there, there's real okay. tension starting <clears throat> to build now at this stage. Looking ahead to the coming week, more talk and who knows? Looking to next Thursday, as we'd already mentioned, Boris Johnson is out of lockdown and will be fit and well and able to bound around here, there and everywhere. So uh, who knows what might happen as a result of that. One fixed date we do have is next Wednesday morning when Robin Walker, Northern Ireland uh, minister, is going to be appearing in the parliamentary committees to answer more security questions, having heard the problems that have been outlined by various evidence so far he now has to respond MPs and Lords keen to know what the government are going to do about all of these problems that are facing the security situation come the 1st of January Tony yeah well again Colin it'll be more negotiations whether by video call or in person and again we may see some of those no deal contingency plans being published by the commission next week if, if they do accede to member states demands but yeah i mean all the, all the spotlight will be on whether or not they can get this thing over the line next week and if they can't then you know we really are in totally new territory thanks very much that's it from me Colm O'Mungoyne RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin from me Sean Whelan in London and from me Tony Connolly RT's Europe Editor in Brussels thanks for listening